0: welcome to the new episode of american hauntings the podcast dedicated to history hauntings legends lore and the dark side of american history this is not one of the regular episodes of the podcast this is a halloween season bonus that's been written and performed by troy taylor and that's me my partner in crime cody beck is sitting this one out but he's definitely gonna be a part of it because he's gonna be cleaning up the mess that I make uh, with this recording. But as we near the end of our season on Haunted Hollywood, as we told you the last couple of weeks, we're gonna be with you every week until Halloween is over and really until the season is over because this was a way of not only celebrating Halloween, but it was a way of wrapping up that season that has just never seemed to end. So again, I apologize for that, but you know, there were a lot of stories and we're not quite finished with them yet. But if you've missed any of the shows this season, or if this is your first time listening, go back to episode 70, the podcast, and that will get you caught up on everything that's already happened. Just be aware, the episodes in this season are definitely not suitable for all listeners. So if you keep on listening after this, you can never say that we did not warn you. The ghost of Thelma Todd still walks today, more than 85 years after her death, or at least that's what the owners of a building on the Pacific Coast Highway have claimed for a very long time. It was in this building where Thelma's roadside rest cafe was once located, and it's not far from the house where she met her mysterious end. The official cause of Thelma's death was said to be an accidental poisoning from carbon monoxide, but the true facts in this sensational case remain unresolved to this day. And perhaps that's why Thelma's spirit still lingers, looking for someone to uncover what really happened on the night of December 16th, 1935. Well, Thelma Todd, the woman that Hollywood wouldn't know as the ice cream blonde and who made 69 films during her too short career, was born on July 29th, 1905 in Lawrence, Massachusetts. Her father was a former police officer who became one of the leading politicians in the state, and he had little time for his family. Her frustrated mother turned all her energy toward raising her children, Thelma, and her younger brother, William, and she raised them to be exceptional, and it worked. Thelma was an excellent student, earning high marks in school. She was also considered to be one of the most beautiful young women in the city. After high school, she enrolled at the Lowell State Normal School and became a teacher. She supplemented her modest salary from teaching 6th graders by taking a few modeling jobs. She never expected that to be part of her life, and she never thought it would ever lead anywhere. But then, in 1925, her brother was killed in an accident. Overwhelmed by this family tragedy, Thelma began dreaming of moving away and making a life far away from her grief-stricken home. It's possible she never would have made it, though, if not for a family friend who submitted her photograph in a contest held by Jesse Lasky from Famous Players Lasky Studio, which later became Paramount. He invited Thelma to a screen test for the studio's first film school, where she studied for six months. During her training, Thelma fell in love with a classmate, Robert Andrews, but the studio nipped the romance in the bud fearing gossip would somehow taint the new school. Well, this led the always rebellious Thelma to seek revenge by being extra sexy and flirty around studio executives from that time on. With her classmates from the film school, Thelma made her screen debut in the silent feature Fascinating Youth in 1926, and it launched her career. Initially, Thelma's mother had been thrilled by her daughter's career opportunities, but she had doubts when she saw a publicity photo of the pretty girl in a flimsy costume. Alice Todd rushed to New York to voice her moral objections to studio executives. Already at wit's end with Thelma's rebellious nature, Paramount gave her an ultimatum, relocate to Paramount studio in Hollywood or go home. Thelma packed up and moved to California. Thelma went to work under a five year, $75 per week contract with Paramount. And throughout 1927, she was given small parts in several feature films. Then Al Jolson spoke a few words on screen in the jazz singer and motion pictures were changed forever. Well, the industry went through a terrifying series of changes as the talkies became the new medium of choice. The old silent films were gone for good. And with them went some of the biggest stars of the era. The careers of screen legends like John Gilbert, Clara Bow, Norma Talmadge and many others were suddenly over. They were forced into retirement when the public didn't respond to the sound of their voices. For Thelma, the coming of sound motion pictures could not have occurred at a better time. She had a wonderfully throaty voice, which helped her to make a swift transition to talking pictures. She was also now able to develop a wisecracking persona, and the demise of many screen veterans made room for newcomers and little known actors like Thelma. A new generation of screen stars was born. However, Paramount failed to renew her contract in 1929, and her career seemed over before it really began. And then along came Hal Roach, the maker of some of Hollywood's most popular comedies. He offered her a movie deal, and even allowed her to freelance for other studios. A former director at SNA Studios, Roach had emerged as a comedic talent, envisioning hilarious situations and transplanting them to film. Roach concentrated more on story than slapstick, and audiences loved him at the box office. His biggest stars became Laurel and Hardy and Thelma Todd. She proved to be a real asset to Roach, not only appearing in her own films, but as a female foil to Stan and Ollie and others. Roach had big plans to feature Thelma with another comedic actress, Zazu Pitts, and a series of two real comic shorts. Well, At first, Thelma was reluctant to take the deal with Roach because the obligation came with conditions. The first was that she had to bleach her hair platinum blonde, and the second required her to abide by what was known as the potato clause. This meant that she was being signed at a certain weight. And if she gained more than five pounds, it was cause for instant dismissal. Thelma's mother widowed since 1925 was in Hollywood for one of her frequent visits. And she urged Thelma to take the deal before reporting to the roach lot for her first shoot. Alice Todd supervised the bleaching of her daughter's hair and helped her to plan a stringent diet. In addition to Thelma's comedies for Hal Roach, Thelma also played major roles in films for other studios. They were primarily comedies in which she portrayed the sarcastic and wisecracking blonde role that most suited her. She appeared in two different films with the Marx Brothers, Monkey Business and the classic Horse Feathers. Stan Laurel always wanted Thelma as the female lead in the Laurel and Hardy films, but her personality didn't always mesh with the two comedians on screen. But she and Laurel became close friends, and he often found work for her at other films when she wasn't working for Roach. He loved her body, sense of humor, and when she suffered from boyfriend problems, she always confided in Stan. Thelma was always up for partying when she was not at work, and found it difficult to avoid liquor and foods, both of which, quote, made her fat. Friends on the Roach lot introduced her to diet pills, which were essentially amphetamines and she soon became hooked on the tablets. Well, by 1930, Zazu Pitts had moved on to other work and Thelma was often joined on screen by Patsy Kelly. They were still going strong in 1935 and her professional career was filled with high spots. Always restless in her personal life though, Thelma was pleased when director Roland West started showing an interest in her. Even though the unattractive older man was already married to silent screen actress, Jewel Carmen. Well, the relationship didn't last long burning out around the time that the movie that West cast Thelma in, Corsair, bombed at the box office, but the two stayed friends. In fact, it was West who'd gotten tired of making movies who suggested that he and Thelma open up a restaurant that would cater to the film crowd. A short time later, they would. But Thelma was first distracted by the new man in her life, New York playboy Pasquale DeCiccio, who was pals with Charles Lucky Luciano and other gangsters. To Thelma, this gave her life a touch of danger, although some believe it was this danger that got her killed. Well, the two had a whirlwind romance, despite the fact that Pat had a violent temper and beat Thelma up a few times, they got married. You won't be surprised to learn it wasn't a happy one. Thelma worked, her husband drank, and she had gangsters hanging around their house. It was obvious that something bad was eventually going to happen. Finally, in 1934, Thelma filed for divorce. That summer, with funding from Joel Carmen, yes, the wife of the man she had an affair with, Thelma and Roland West opened Thelma Todd's Sidewalk Cafe for business. Located on what is now Pacific Coast Highway, then known as Roosevelt Highway, the restaurant occupied the ground floor along with a drugstore. On the second level were a bar, a lounge, West's business office, and two apartments. Nearby on Positano Road was the large house where West's wife, Jewel, sometimes lived along with her brother, who was the cafe's business manager, and his wife. Thelma stored her car in one of the garages of the Positano Road house. To reach the garage from the restaurant required a long climb of 270 concrete steps. Well, the cafe opened a good business, many of West's and Thelma's famous friends began frequenting the place, and it became popular with actors and starstruck fans alike. In mid-1935, Thelma was spending a lot of her free time running the cafe, and that's when she started to get pressured by her ex-husband's old pal, Lucky Luciano, to turn the third floor of her building into a casino operated by the mob. Thelma refused, and things got ugly. They had a confrontation one night at the Brown Derby, and Thelma was overheard to say, you'll open a gambling casino in my restaurant over my dead body. To which Luciano replied, that can be arranged. Despite him, Thelma turned the third floor space into a steakhouse. Well, that might have been a fatal mistake. On December 14th, Thelma received an invitation to a Hollywood party. A few years earlier, she had made a film with Stanley Lupino, the British stage comedian and father of actress Ida Lupino. Stanley and his wife were in town and Ida was hosting a dinner party for him at the Cafe Trucadero. When Thelma informed West about the party, he was irritated with her that she would not be at their own restaurant on such a busy night before the holidays. But this was not the worst thing to come that night. A few days later, Pat DeCiccio had run into Ida Lupino at the Trocadero and she had unknowingly invited him to the party. On the afternoon of December 14th, Thelma and her mother went out Christmas shopping, driven by her chauffeur, Ernest Peters. Later she returned home to change clothes while her mother continued with her errands. At 7.30pm, Peters, along with Mrs. Todd, picked up Thelma. The actress was wearing a blue satin evening gown with lace and sequins, expensive jewelry, and a luxurious mink coat. Before leaving, she and West argued again about the cafe, but the still rebellious Thelma slammed the door in his face and walked out. After dropping Thelma off at the Trucadero, Peters took Mrs. Todd home and then made himself available to drive Thelma home after the party. She would be returning to her apartment above the cafe. It was a small gathering by Hollywood standards, about a dozen people, but it was not without drama. Thelma arrived alone, but her ex-husband did not. He had two companions, the lovely actress Margaret Lindsay and one of her equally attractive starlet friends. Thelma dined next to a vacant seat while Pat made a show of enjoying himself at another table. Thelma was not amused and stopped by his table to tell him so. A little later she left her seat to make a telephone call and use the restroom when she returned she seemed moody but didn't say why around midnight pat also made a mysterious phone call which left him jittery he refused to say what it was about and left with margaret and her friend at about 1 15 a.m without saying goodbye to anyone while Thelma waited for her driver to arrive she asked her friend theater owner sid grauman to call Roland West and tell him she was on her way home. Sid made the call, telling West that Thelma should be back at the apartment by 2.30 a.m., although she was still waiting on her car at the restaurant a half hour after that. When Peters finally arrived with the car, Thelma's friends escorted her out, and before getting in, she turned back to them with a theatrical grand flourish and a grin. Goodbye, she called and waved her arm. In the car, she told Peters to take her out to the roadhouse and they drove for a bit in silence. Then Thelma began to urge him to drive faster. They were being followed, she said, by gangsters. After her recent brushes with mob boss Luciano, she was worried about being kidnapped or murdered. Peters hit the gas. At speeds of up to 70 miles an hour, the car careened westward along the curves of Sunset Boulevard till the ocean and Thelma's cafe finally came into view. We don't know if Thelma was really being followed or not, but she certainly seemed to think she was. It was 3.30 a.m. Sunday morning when they arrived at the roadhouse. As usual, Peters offered to escort Thelma to the door, but she told him it wasn't necessary. She gathered her coat around her and walked off into the dark. And this was the last time, as far as we know, that Thelma Todd was ever seen alive. On Monday morning, December 16th, Thelma's housekeeper, May Whitehead, reported for work around 10 a.m. She looked around, but oddly, Thelma was nowhere to be found. She wasn't in the apartment above the roadhouse or the cafe. She looked around for Thelma's new Packard convertible and thought she could see it through the partially open doors of the garage atop the cliff, where it was usually parked. An older man named Smith, who kept the books from the roadhouse, lived in a loft above the garage. May assumed Thelma was visiting with the bookkeeper because there was no one else around that morning. After a while, though, it began to nag at her. Finally, around 1030, she climbed the 270 steps up the cliff, entered the garage, and turned on the light. And found Thelma Todd. She was lying face down on the front seat of her Packard. Her blonde hair was matted and her skin was pale. She was still wearing her clothes from Saturday night. A porcelain replacement tooth had been knocked out of her mouth and blood was spattered on her skin, her evening gown and on the mink coat. There was also blood all over the car's interior, on the floor and in the garage. Thelma was dead at the age of only 30. Her death launched one of the strangest investigations in the history of Los Angeles. It was strange because of the contradictory clues, the leads that were never followed, the suspects that were never questioned or at least not questioned seriously. And it's no wonder that her death is still considered one of the most mysterious in Hollywood history and that the investigation is seen more as a cover up than as a real search for clues and suspects. A coroner's jury would insist that Thelma died by her own hand, perhaps intentionally, The official cause of death was carbon monoxide asphyxiation. The official version was that Thelma, finding herself locked out of her apartment, climbed the stone steps from the street to the garage and had tried to stay warm in her Packard by starting the engine. The exhaust then suffocated her. Well, this was a neat and tidy solution to a potentially large problem. Thelma was dead and nothing could bring her back. An official finding of death by her own hand, accidental or otherwise, put an end to speculation about murder. It got Thelma Todd, her studio, and the whole film industry off the front pages with very little fuss. If Thelma had been murdered, the most obvious suspects were her mobbed up ex-husband, her film director and sometimes lover, her lover's wife, who was also a film actress, or maybe even just some random gangster. If she'd been murdered, the studio bosses, didn't want to know. Many of the Americans who paid to see the movies wouldn't tolerate yet another Hollywood scandal. They might stop going to the movies, and in 1935, that would be a disaster for the studios and in turn for city leaders and the police, both of which had a long history of accommodating the film industry to the profit of all. There was only one big business in Los Angeles before World War II, the movies, and it wouldn't do to have the money-making machine slowed down because of a starlet's death, no matter how Popular she was. Well, the official version of events was neat and tidy, and well, there's no way it could be true. If Thelma was trying to stay warm, why would she get into a convertible instead of a sedan that was parked next to it? The Packard was not running, and there were two gallons of gas left in the tank. Well, how did that happen? If she was suicidal, why hadn't she used the closed up sedan, which would have been easier and quicker? Why had she personally wrapped a hundred Christmas presents just two days before? She obviously planned to celebrate. And why had she just started work on a new film if she planned to commit suicide? And there were more holes in the corners theory. If she had climbed the 270 concrete steps, why were her feet unmarked? And why didn't her brand new shoes show scuff marks or any signs of wear from climbing those steps? If Thelma had climbed all those steps, opened the garage door, and started the Packard at 3.30 in the morning, why didn't the bookkeeper who lived upstairs hear anything? He later testified he was up reading until 2.30 a.m. He was sure he would have heard something below him, but he'd heard nothing at all. The coroner also had no explanation for the blood on her face, on her clothing, and in the car. Her clothing was in such disarray that it suggested a struggle, but the coroner took no account of this. During the autopsy, it was revealed that Thelma suffered a broken nose, several broken ribs and had bruises on her body and inside of her throat. A veteran reporter noted the bruising inside the throat as well as the knocked out tooth could have been caused by someone shoving a bottle down her throat, which might also explain the high level of alcohol in her body. The autopsy revealed that the food in Thelma's stomach had been eaten just a few hours before at the Trocadero party. But the autopsy also revealed more alcohol in her system, 0.13%, than would have been possible from the four drinks she had at the party, two before eating dinner and two after. The coroner's attempt to fix the time of death at early Sunday morning was undermined by the weather that night. It had been unseasonably cold, and there had been a strong sea breeze throughout the night. This cold air might or might not have slowed the decomposition of Thelma's body. That became important because the coroner insisted that Thelma's driver, Ernest Peters, had been the last person to see her alive. However, no less than four people came forward to say they'd heard or spoken to Thelma in the time between 3.30 a.m. on Sunday and 10.30 a.m. on Monday. There was jewel carmen who was still married to roland west she knew thelma very well and told the police she saw her on sunday morning in her packard convertible at the corner of hollywood and vine and there had been a handsome swarthy well-dressed man in the car with her jewel said she'd never seen the man before mrs wallace ford claimed she had heard from thelma at 4 p.m on sunday afternoon Thelma called her from a payphone to tell her she would be attending Ford's cocktail party that night with a surprise guest. When you see who's coming with me, you'll drop dead, Thelma laughed. A pharmacist swore that Thelma made the call from a payphone in his drugstore. It was also a report from a man named person who owned a liquor store on figueroa he told the police that thelma had come into his store on sunday evening around 11 pm she was wearing the same gown she had worn to the trocadero but without a hat or a coat seemingly dazed she asked him to dial a telephone number for her on the payphone person didn't remember the prefix but the last four digits had been seven 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 one He said that she then left the shop and joined a handsome man who appeared out of the alley with her fur coat. She walked across the street with the man and they sat down together on the front steps of a church. They talked for around a half an hour and then left. Well, everything about the case seemed to be a mess, suggesting this was no accidental poisoning in a garage filled with exhaust fumes. But if Thelma had been murdered, who had killed her? Even today, Roland West seems the most likely suspect, and his actions on the night of December 15th are certainly mysterious. Sid Grauman called him at the roadhouse about two o'clock or three o'clock in the morning. As Sid remembered it, he told West that Thelma was leaving soon and would be home in under an hour. West closed the restaurant, sent the staff home and went upstairs to bed. And he admitted that he bolted the heavy door between the stairwell and the apartment from the inside so that Thelma could not get in, even using her key. Now, why would he do this? Well, West claimed that after their fight about the cafe earlier on Saturday, he had warned her that if she was not home by 2 a.m., he would lock her out. Well, Thelma surmised that Thelma's telephone call during the party had been to West, hoping for a reprieve. When it didn't come, she asked mutual friend Sid Grauman to call for her later. But West stubbornly refused to back down. He said he likely would have let her in if he'd heard her knocking, but the sounds of the wind and the surf drowned everything out. Or so he said. Because then he told the police that a barking dog awakened him at 3.30 a.m. after he had fallen asleep. He also said he heard water running in the apartment and assumed that Thelma was home, but how could she have gotten into the house through the manually bolted door? Well, Wes said that he realized Thelma wasn't there when he got up the following day. Was he worried? Did he call the police? Well, he said later he assumed she'd gone to her mother's house. but He never checked and he never became alarmed after several telephone calls for Thelma came in on Sunday and none of her friends could locate her. When questioned, neighbors said they heard West in a bitter argument with Thelma when she came home from the party. West now completely changed his story and downplayed the disagreement at the same time. Yes, she'd come back, he just remembered, but he wouldn't let her in. Thelma then beat on the door for the next 10 minutes with her fist and screamed obscenities at him. After that, he said he thought she'd gone to her mother's house. Well, the police never pressed the matter with West. And there's no actual evidence to tie him to the scene of Thelma's death. But Thelma's friends recalled that West had an affinity for convoluted murder mysteries. Some of them called it, quote, an obsessive interest in the perfect crime. Some made the wild suggestion that he'd hired an actress to play the role of Thelma Todd in the heard but not seen argument on Sunday morning. While that was happening, Thelma was already lying dead in the garage. West had killed her because he was angry that she had a new boyfriend. But West may have had another motive, greed. After Thelma's death, he asserted that her only investment in the restaurant was her name, for which she received half the profits. None of her heirs ever contested this. The space occupied by the restaurant and the apartment above it were leased from the building's owner, the building's owner who was Jewel Carmen, West's wife. Interestingly, it had been the sighting of Thelma by Jewel Carmen with the swarthy man in the convertible that the police took most seriously. If she was lying about that, it's possible Thelma was already dead. But of course, we'll never know that for sure. What we do know is that Thelma's death ruined West's career. He never directed another film in Hollywood. He and Jewel Carmen divorced shortly after Thelma's death and later he sold the cafe. In 1950, he suffered a stroke and endured an emotional breakdown. On his deathbed in March 1952, he confessed to Chester Morris that he'd always been haunted by Thelma's death and felt that he was in some way responsible for it, although exactly what he meant by that is unknown. The mystery of what really happened to Thelma has lingered for decades, and most believe this is the reason why her spirit is so restless. Although more than eight decades have passed since Thelma entertained guests at the roadhouse, Her ghost has been frequently reported in the building. It still stands today along the Pacific Coast Highway and has been used as offices and creative spaces for many years. Staff members at a production company that used the space several years ago said they often saw a filmy image that resembled Thelma. It was usually seen near the concrete steps leading to the garage and outside in a small courtyard area. More tragic are the sightings of Thelma's ghost as well as other strange events at the garage on Positano Road. For many years, people complained about the sound of an engine running when the space was empty. Others said they've smelled and have been nearly overwhelmed by what seems to be exhaust fumes. The garage is always empty when this happens, or at least empty of anything they can see. The terrible events of long ago have left an indelible impression on this place, just in the way that Thelma Todd has. Will she ever rest in peace? It seems unlikely unless new evidence would miraculously come to light after all this time her murder will always remain unsolved and as a result her lonely spirit will continue to linger for many more years to come thanks for listening to this week's episode we hope that you'll take the time to share a review about the show on itunes even if that's not where you listen because it's the place that helps us out the most without Cody recording alongside me this week I'm not going to go through the whole list of things we usually do because well you know I like to interrupt him and what's the point if he's not here it's just not as much fun but I will say if you're a fan of the show American Hauntings is not just this podcast it's books tours events and more and our main website can be found at Americanhauntings.net we also hope you might take a minute and see how you can help support the show on Patreon we have bonus episodes that you can hear as a supporter, as well as discounts, shirts, stuff in the mail and more. For those who don't understand how important Patreon is to us, uh, again, I tell you for like the millionth time, go back and listen to the first season and really like half the second. It's horrible. It's horrible, horrible sound. And the reason it sounds better now is because of Patreon. It made it possible for what we do to get a lot better. So check it out at patreon.com slash American hauntings until next time. When Cody will be back with us, good night, good luck. So long, farewell and happy hauntings.